This is Bold Dominion, an explainer for state politics in a changing Virginia. I'm Nathan Moore. Well, folks, it's been a hell of a year. For the world, for the country, and certainly for Virginia and everybody listening at home. 2020 has hit all of us with enough social, political, and economic upheavals to fill a lifetime. And more news stories than we could possibly cover, even if this podcast posted every day instead of every other week. But hey, we'll give it a shot. To help us do this year-in-review podcast this week, Bold Dominion is crossing over with the podcast Transition Virginia. That's another Virginia state politics podcast that started at the beginning of this year. They document the transition of power in Virginia, now that we have Democratic majorities in both houses of the General Assembly. Sounds familiar, right? Yeah, well, Bold Dominion and Transition Virginia have both done episodes on Virginia elections, Black Lives Matter, legalizing cannabis, and lots more. We each bring our own flavor to it, but still, we're pals. So, this week's episode is basically one big roundtable with me and Bold Dominion producer Aryan Balu, as well as Transition Virginia co-hosts Michael Pope and Thomas Bowman. Now, we've edited this conversation to just feature the best bits, but if you want to hear us prattle on for a whole hour, you can do that over at their website, transitionva.com. Without further ado, let's jump in to our 2020 retrospective. Well, let's get right into it, guys. I think there was one story, the most obvious story, that dominated everything. That is the coronavirus. I think one thing that was perhaps a positive for Virginia is that we've got the only governor who's also a medical doctor. Um, And I think it's possible, I think it would be fair to say, that actually helped Virginia in this crisis. Does anyone agree or disagree with that assessment? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, uh, Ralph Northam early on in this thing, you know, he took some uh, uh, lumps here and there uh, for how things were handled. But all in all, I do think that having that medical background certainly helped inform his decisions from kind of a public health perspective. Uh, And partly we got lucky, right? You know, Virginia's, it's not like we had no cases, right? It's been still not good, but it has not been the sort of complete disaster of some other areas. And, and you know, I think his leadership as a doctor partly, but I think also just having a clear, consistent person who's communicating well about this stuff, you know, and you can contrast that very obviously with DC where the response was, was, I mean, everything from conspiracy theories to, to um, pretending it didn't exist to, you know, all the other sort of disastrous communication that Trump was involved with. So this is the one thing that I've been studying uh, in my consultancy since the pandemic began. And I do have a little bit of uh, shade to throw, not so much at Northam, but in the entire process um, and a few really heavy criticisms, frankly. Um, One pulled us out of lockdown way too soon, succumbing to pressure from the business community who mistakenly believed that we could reopen the economy. And anybody who was paying attention to the science could tell you that wasn't going to be the case. But um, for one, they should have had a public mask order this whole time. We would not necessarily be where we are today if they had done that. Um, And also uh, indoor dining and allowing that to continue is ridiculous. That's the number one highest risk activity, keeping gyms open, houses of worship open. uh, These account for over 50% of Virginia's cases. The most recent one is the curfews. There is no science behind curfews, and there is a lot of science that uh, it's not the it, or it's not the time that matters. It's the activity that matters, right? So, I actually doing messaging um, in my day job have a really 
big issue with arbitrary and capricious public health orders. I think that the governor would have been far better served just from doing the things that the CDC has recommended from day one and sticking to the science and letting the, um, you know, letting the results speak for themselves because you can't negotiate with a virus. It's just looking for hosts to infect. It doesn't care the words that come out of your mouth or your rhetoric or who you vote for. In history and looking back, you'll just be far better served doing what you need to do from the start. So that those are my bones. But I would say Virginia, of course, has fared better than many of its Southern neighbors. But at the same time, we could have done better. I, I want to push back a little bit. I mean, far far be it for me t- to spend a lot of time defending Ralph Northam for anything. But I, I have a lot of sympathy for um, governments that have reopened, uh, especially now in these the latest months of the pandemic, without any sort of... Um, top-down like money coming into individuals and businesses you want to talk about indoor dining like there's there's no doubt that indoor dining is a is a significant you know spreading event for coronavirus but if those businesses like small businesses close down now after you know a paltry twelve hundred dollars and then you know now we're getting six hundred dollars like they they will shut down permanently oh yeah and so like it's hard to i find it hard to fault uh, a state government for keeping those sorts of businesses open because I mean, livelihood is important, especially for business owners. So there's a guy named Andy Slavitt who is Obama's top doctor, and he's been going around probably since the summer and saying governments should use their bonding authority to pass what he calls bar bonds. But essentially, these are small denomination um, bonds that we could be purchasing or investors could be purchasing that would go to small businesses to effectively pay these small businesses to stay closed. And uh, this would be something, of course, that you could pass in all 50 states separately because you're right, there's no leadership coming from the federal government. Um, But I look at the self-inflicted economic pain as a measure of lack of creativity and just reacting to events rather than having a strategic plan to stay ahead of the curve. Kind of hear both of you on this, really. Um, I think this is one of those times when, you know, we're doing a podcast on state politics, and we do. We, we want to find out how Virginia works, why Virginia does the things it does. But this is one of those where the role of the federal government was really, really critical, and it completely fell down on the job. I mean, without a coordinated national response, the states are going to do their best. But, you know, I mean, the only... Uh, entity with the power of the purse, the financial muster to pull this off in a way that would have kept uh, people from hurting really badly economically is the federal government. And and it was, I mean, you know, Mitch McConnell's GOP just basically held a, 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 a sort of aid package hostage until they turned it into a defense spending bill with tax deductions for, for three martini lunches. I mean, you know, it's really... Um, without that role, without actual leadership that's for people and not for you know the profits of the the, the biggest coffers um, at the national level, I don't know what Virginia could have done that much better. Yeah, I agree, Thomas. A few things, but um, but you know, really, it's a complete falling down on the job in the Trump regime. So COVID, of course, was the top story, but it wasn't the only story. There was another thing that was on the ballot in November that passed the very controversial constitutional amendment creating a redistricting commission, a 
bipartisan redistricting commission. Importantly, not an independent redistricting commission. I think for many years, lots of people were saying all these political boundaries for the House of Delegates and the state Senate and even Congress should be drawn by a quote-unquote independent group of people, you know, like retired judges, that sort of thing. And that did not happen. Instead, we got this crazy hybrid system that involves lawmakers and citizens working together to draw these maps and this carefully designed process to balance the commission equally between Republicans and Democrats um, Thomas, I know that you were critical of the amendment as it was going through the the uh, the process of the election. Um, do you what do you think is going to be the end result of this thing now that it's passed? Well, one, I th- I think the end result is that nobody is going to be happy. Um, and by the way, I do not believe that's necessarily the mark of a good compromise. Um, look at all the applicants to this um, redistricting commission; they are overwhelmingly wealthy and white, which presumably is would have basically come up with the same result uh, as the legislature itself. And, you know, they've got a very compressed time scale and they don't have maps yet. Um, so we'll see. I, I'm not hopeful that we'll get a satisfactory result. Well, you say you're not hopeful that we're going to get a satisfactory result, but like what would be satisfactory? I mean, I... Well, Nathan, I'll put the question to you. What would be a satisfactory result for this commission? Well, I just, you know, I, I would even back it up just a little bit to say, you know, I do really appreciate that they were trying to solve a problem that has been a real problem and made much worse in the last decade or so. And that's gerrymandering, right? Where uh, whatever political party is in charge in Richmond has, after each census, uh, drawn the maps both for U.S. Congress, uh, the House districts, and for the state Senate and state uh, delegates districts, drawn those maps in a way that, uh, you know, the let's say the Republicans are in charge. Well, they'll draw the maps so that um, Democrats have like a super majority of voters in a small number of districts, um, like, for example, uh, Sally Hudson's district around Charlottesville here. You know, it's like 85% Democrats or 80% Democrats. Meanwhile, all the districts around it are just a comfortable majority Republican. So like 55%, 54%, that kind of thing. And so it, it, it packs all the party, all the voters from another party into a smaller number of districts. Ergo, the majority of districts vote for the party that's currently in power. Um, now that's there, there, I get really tired of the both sides stuff, but in this case, both sides is appropriate. Both parties did do that historically. Um, the, the bigger issue is that the Republicans after the 2010 census led by Ed Gillespie, um, really kind of put it into overdrive. I mean, it was like, like really, really tailor made to maintain a Republican majority as long as possible. Um, and uh, and would have worked, except Trump was such a divisive figure that the Democrats managed to overwhelm it. <laughs> um, and that sort of suburban, exurban uh, voting patterns have really shifted toward Democrats in Virginia over the last decade. Um, I mean, as far as what would be satisfactory, I think an actually independent commission that didn't end up being essentially run by lawmakers still, um, but just a smaller number of lawmakers. You know, I don't know. I don't have like a great alternative to this. Um, and I know talking to various journalists and, and lawmakers about it uh, and, and sort of party activists about it, there was, um, you know, the, the definitely difference of opinion. Uh, some people said, oh, hey, it's a step in the right direction, but it definitely has problems, but at least it's a step in the right direction. Uh, others were like, you know, it actually doesn't really improve things 
that much at all. And now we're never going to come back to it. So, <laughs> you know, what's, what's actually better. Um, and cynically, I know some Democrats too, who are like, Hey, we've been stuck with, uh, gerrymandered districts against us for a long time. Why are we giving this up? <laughs> yeah, totally. D Democrats, Democrats will say that in private. They won't say that when you turn on the microphones. So, you know, Thomas thinks that if no one is happy, that's not necessarily a sign of success. I'll turn that into a question for Ari. And do you, so like if the Democrats are unhappy with what comes out of this commission and the Republicans are unhappy with what comes out of that commission, is this a sign of success for the commission or is Thomas right? That's not a sign of success. <laughs> whether people are happy, uh, uh, whether, whether lawmakers of a particular political party are happy has very little to do with whether this is actually a good thing or a bad thing. I, I, I'm sure that Democrats and Republicans in the legislature will have uh, plenty of, of reasons to dislike whatever the districts end up looking like, but we just, I, we don't know if those districts are going to be fair or unfair or, or how they're going to turn out. Um, I like Thomas was pretty critical of the amendment kind of right at the end. I realized this was not something I was a, a fan of. And I think it, it is just consolidating um, power in a group of people who aren't necessarily any better or more independent than uh, what the legislature would look like. Michael Pope and Thomas Bowman are the hosts of Transition Virginia, a podcast that documents Virginia's transition of political power now that the state has Democratic majorities in the General Assembly. And we're still also joined by Arian Ballou, producer of Bold Dominion. This Year in Review crossover episode continues after a short break. You're listening to Bold Dominion, a state politics explainer for changing Virginia. Visit us online at bolddominion.org. Have a friend who's trying to figure out Virginia state politics? Well, tell them about this show. And then subscribe in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever fine podcasts are served up. Hey, while you're there, go ahead and leave us a five-star review. Bold Dominion is a member of the Virginia Audio Collective, online at virginiaaudio.org. Check out all the podcasts from the collective, including Museum Minute. Is podcasting a visual medium? Well... Henry Skerritt, Margot Smith, and Matthew McClendon say yes. Each week, these curators of the University of Virginia's museums take us on a quick audio tour of one of the works in their museums. That's Museum Minute, available at virginiaaudio.org. In the second half of this episode, we're continuing our roundtable discussion with Michael Pope and Thomas Bowman, hosts of the Transition Virginia podcast, plus Arian Ballou, producer of Bold Dominion. The four of us are drilling down into what got done in terms of criminal justice reform and what we might see from Virginia's legislature in the year ahead. Here on Bold Dominion, we edited down the conversation to about a half hour, but if you want to hear the four of us prattle on for a whole hour, you can listen to the longer version of this conversation at transitionva.com. So another very important thing that's happened this year is all of the criminal justice reform, the policing reform that's come out of the Black Lives Matter movement, which includes removing Confederate monuments. You know, um, this is, uh, there was so much legislation to come out of the General Assembly. It's actually impossible to even talk about it all. Um, but I will just sort of name the top line thing that for, for me anyway, I think the most one of the most significant things is the ban on pretextual policing. So, you know, it used to be 
that a police officer could pull you over because they smelled marijuana. Well, guess what? They pulled over black people because they smelled marijuana. Or they could pull you over because there was something dangling from your rear view mirror. I think if people are listening to this podcast right now as they're driving, they probably, they it's, it's likely they've got something dangling from their rear view mirror, like a parking pass. Well, guess what? Police used to be able to pull you over and use that as an excuse. And guess what? They pulled over black people. So the fact that they changed the laws on pretextual policing, so that's no longer a primary offense where they could pull you over. It's now a secondary offense. So they can no longer pull you over because of the smell of marijuana. They can no longer pull you over because you have something dangling from your rearview mirror. That's a significant step. The lawmakers also change the way jury trials work. So you can now have a jury trial, but not be sentenced by the jury. You can have the judge issue you a sentence. And this is a very important development because juries are notorious for having ridiculous sentencing. And so people would avoid having a jury trial because they didn't want to be sentenced by a jury. So this is a change that will have far-reaching consequences for the criminal justice system for many, many years to come. Some failures that are worth talking about. Uh, The most significant is chokehold. So one of the big things the Black Lives Matter movement was very concerned about was banning chokeholds. Well, guess what? Lawmakers did not ban chokeholds. They want to tell you that they banned chokeholds, but uh, they created a limitation for chokeholds that allows police officers to use a chokehold if they feel like their life is in danger or anybody else's life is in danger, which means they've got an out and they're going to use that at every opportunity. So um, this chokeholds thing uh, was not nearly as strong as it could have been or advocates wanted it to be. And then there's also the issue of expungements, where the House and this, the Democrats in the House and the Democrats in the Senate could not agree on how to do expungements, and so they didn't do it. And that ha- actually happened during the regular session before the pandemic, and then they came together in the special session, and they had the same disagreement, and they could not figure it out, and so they once again uh, punted. And so we still have no action on expungements. Hopefully we'll see something in 2021, um, but I guess we'll have to see. Um a lot to unpack here with uh, criminal justice reform and Black Lives Matter and even Confederate monuments. Um, mm-hmm. What do you guys think the highlights were? Well, certainly the the reforms you mentioned are, are probably the most concrete things to come out of it. I actually was wondering if you all, uh, what you all thought about how the Black Lives Matter movement in Virginia will, that's one, you know, your podcast cover that, our podcast cover that. How is that going to... Um, what can we look ahead to 2021 in terms of, of some of the demands of, of that movement and, and what comes of them? I mean, we're going to get an answer to that relatively quickly. Um, with the legislative session coming up in January, uh, I know Sally Hudson talked on on the podcast about how what we got done in the special session was kind of like a down payment or a promise or you know a holdover until we could get some boots on the ground in January. So... I, I don't know what it's going to look like. I am hopeful that we get something a little more progressive than that first step that we got uh, this August. But I mean, we'll have to see in the next month or two. My guess is that it comes back up in the um, at least in the Democratic primaries um, with right now two black women and Justin Fairfax also running for governor. Um uh, Terry McAuliffe put somebody to death, right? Um, when he didn't necessarily have to. Um, this is going to be something that uh, is going to be a clarion call in the Democratic primary if they want the support 
uh, from the black community, especially if that nominee is not black. So I think we're, we've got more to hear on it. You know, when we look at the the demands of of today's Black Lives Matter movement, now it's it's a, a widely disparate movement. It's not as if there's one organization that you can look to, but a lot of those demands are encapsulated really nicely in the national um, uh, the movement for Black Lives website it has a platform that's published. It's a remarkable political document. There's a lot in there about policing and criminal justice, uh, also a lot about you know uh, symbols of racism. Okay, so that's something that we've certainly tackled here in Virginia. Richmond has removed a lot of its Confederate monuments, and the Lee statue is, I think, still languishing in court. Uh, back here in Charlottesville, it feels like statues have been talked about to death for the last you know, four years um, or five years even. And, uh, and, you know, we've got one removed, the others are basically scheduled to be removed. Um, and you know, it's, I was talking with Don gathers about that. He's a, a preacher here in town and, and sort of one of the leaders in Charlottesville's black community. And, and, you know, he and I have talked about this a couple times where, um, uh, it, it is important that symbolism of, of these things, as you approach, as you walk downtown, as you enter the, the like legal space where things have to happen, you know, in a court, um, to have these figures looming over you as you do that is 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 really a, a, a scar and a stain on our community. Uh, and so, yeah, it's a cause for celebration to have him removed. It's a it makes you feel buoyant. Uh, he, he he said, and from a live broadcast we did from the removal of the Johnny Reb statue. Um, at the same time, you know, other things that are desperately needed, other demands that are in that movement for Black Lives platform, we haven't even scratched the surface yet. Things like, you know, self-determination, economic empowerment, um, you know, the the stuff that's going to really affect the material lives, um, you know, the sort of bread and butter uh, jobs and healthcare kind of conditions of, of Black Virginians. Uh, that's still has an awful long way to go. I mean, we're not even having conversations about most of that stuff yet. Uh, you know, one that was kind of interesting to me is, you know, you all are reporters and Ari and I have been doing this podcast and, and um, uh, you know, the, the special session this summer. Now, granted, there were several things about the special session that were special besides the name. Um, it was happening during COVID. It was responding to really acute issues raised by the Black Lives Matter movement, but it went on forever, right? It convened in August. It didn't officially uh, uh, end until November. Um, and so, I mean, it was actually longer than the regular session. And, and you know, one thing that's important to point out about that is during a regular session, the lawmakers meet every day. They don't meet on, meet on weekends necessarily, although sometimes that happens, but even on like MLK day, they'll, they will be meeting. They didn't do that for the special session. There were some weeks when they would only meet one day a week. And even that was like a pro forma session. So, uh, it was a the it was a very leisurely pace for that special session. They did not they didn't have the schedule that they would normally have for a session, which made it drag on way longer. It's actually that's actually how Congress deals with it. Of course, of course, and I don't uh, discount any of what you just said. At the same time, though, uh, there have been some murmurings, and and I've heard these conversations occasionally about really a need for. I mean, Virginia is a modern tech economy with a lot of things going on, and more than eight million people these days. It's not sort of an agrarian in space where where little changes and uh and we can meet you know for 30 days once a year to make a few little changes around the edges i mean there's some stuff that comes up that the state needs to address and uh and so yeah there has been some talk about you know do we move toward a system with a more um year-round professional legislature or do we keep doing this kind of citizen legislature model 
uh, where, you know, everything gets slammed into just a few weeks and then everybody goes home to some other job that they are somehow able to leave for six or eight weeks. Yeah. I think you really hit the nail on the head earlier too. Um, this counts for Virginia, although our constitution has been updated more recently, but this counts for Virginia and the federal government. You know, if, if I've learned one thing from 2020, it's that a piece of paper written in the Enlightenment age is no basis for an adequate system of government in the age of information. Life moves too fast. Uh, you can have computers identify smart policy now, right? And faster than humans and like sitting and pushing pencils can come up with. Um, you know, look also, you know, I'll extend that to some of the stuff that, um, uh, some of the bureaucracy in Virginia too, uh, the unemployment office was overwhelmed. It's still overwhelmed and it's still not paying out what people are owed. And it's still processing stuff from like claims from July. Uh, you know, this is humiliating in my opinion for any government Republican or Democrat. Um, and you know, there's not really a partisan blame here. It's been neglected by both parties forever, you know, since it was created. And uh, yeah, nobody's gone to the mat over expanding unemployment benefits, right, and leading up to 2020. And so now when we're in a crisis, we're realizing that, yeah, in addition to a part-time unprofessional legislature uh, not being adequate, um, by the way, there's no congressional research office or congressional budget office or equivalent in Virginia, right? So when you get a... Fiscal impact statement from an agency or the administration, generally speaking, you don't actually know if that's true. But when the governor doesn't want a bill to pass, and any governor doesn't want a certain bill to pass, they can spike the fiscal impact statement. It is just a thing that they can do and have always been able to do to prevent something from passing. And then the ledge just kicks things over to administration or to um, appropriations to go die, just like they did with the right to work bill, right? It, it, it had a bunch of Democratic votes and then just died without a hearing. The bureaucracy as is is just completely inadequate. Oh, and Thomas, I just wanted to echo that too with, with the unemployment claims. I think what 2020 has taught me or shown me is that every trend that was already there, everything, every sort of uh, uh, problem or issue that we might have had has just been brought into really, really stark relief. And so, uh, you know, lagging on on sort of administrative uh, capacity to, to deal with this kind of thing, that's playing out in unemployment in just exactly the ways you said. I mean, people, you know, the office is barely answering their phone now because they've been so overwhelmed with like literally millions of claims over the last nine months. But then other things too, I mean, in general, the, the economic inequality, uh, minimum wage issues, uh, poverty issues in Virginia, I feel like are, are incredibly underreported. And the other one that's going to blow up in our faces, honestly, pretty soon, I'm afraid, is uh, the eviction crisis that's going to happen. I mean, there's been a moratorium on evictions for the last, what, half year maybe? But, uh, you know, unless that's extended, and even eventually it will not be there. Eventually the moratorium on evictions will go away. Uh, and you'll have people who owe five, six, seven, eight, ten thousand dollars in back rent. Where's that money going to come from? You're going to have a glut of people out in the streets really quickly. Um, people who don't have work, people whose unemployment claims, uh, sort of expanded unemployment benefits are also going to hit their cap. Um, and people who are going to be homeless. And so, I mean, this is not going to be a small problem. It's going to be an awful lot of people having to deal with this at once. 
Um, Thomas, what's in your crystal ball for 2021? Uh, well, uh, you know, poverty and food insecurity is in my crystal ball, um, in addition to the eviction crisis. Um, so just to color it a little bit more, um, 35% of all Americans are having trouble uh, or can't pay their rent or they're behind on their rent or they're in forbearance or something like that. This, this just came out on CNN the other day. Um, and that number is higher in DC, by the way, which is not too far away, uh, where it's in the 60% threshold. And that actually, you know, if you can't pay your mortgage or pay your rent, um, that says that not only are you m most likely unemployed, uh, meaning that real unemployment is nationwide at 35%, but there are other problems that you have. Like you can't buy, you're going to have trouble buying food. You're going to have trouble uh, paying your electric and water bills. And uh, the insecurity created by poverty is a national security concern. You know, we're already seeing it in the political extremism uh, happening right now. And uh, giving people a stake in the economy is the fastest way to decrease political extremism. And so I think that things get worse politically, not better in 2021, uh, unless we can really attack poverty and all of the things that it goes with. Michael Pope and Thomas Bowman are the hosts of Transition Virginia, a podcast that's documenting Virginia's transition of political power. Find them online at transitionva.com or wherever you get your podcasts. My name's Nathan Moore, and I'm the host of Bold Dominion. Huge thanks, as always, to our producer, Aryan Balu. You can find this show online at bolddominion.org. Go ahead and subscribe. It's just a click away. And hey, as the year wraps up and the holidays fade into memory, we're always on the lookout for topics for future episodes. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Send your ideas to our email address, bolddominion at virginia.edu. That's bolddominion at virginia.edu. You can also direct messages on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. A happy new year, y'all, and make sure to keep social distancing. I'll talk with you again in 2021.